Last week we dealt with the wonderful prospect held out at the beginning of Romans chapter 8. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Built, of course, on what Paul had already said, that therefore drives us back, as we saw, to what we noted uh, in the previous uh, chapters of Romans. He has convicted us all of sin, chapter 3. He has shown that we are justified through faith and that it is only by being in Christ. Then he's taking it on here. But in chapter 8, what he wants to do is show us that we are to live the life that we have in Christ by the Spirit. And the Spirit is very much the subject We noted last week at chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, that he speaks about the fact that we have been set free, set free from the law of sin and death. We're set free, how? By the law of the Spirit. In other words, the law of sin and death, the law that brings us under condemnation, has been dealt with by the working of of the Spirit in our lives and in our hearts. I want today to go on to consider really verses 3 and 4, which follow on (coughs) from those first two verses. And here we see really what God did. That's the great focus of, of these verses. But it is leading to what we read on and how we are to live therefore by or according to the Spirit. As we think of these verses, really verses 3 and 4, there's two thoughts. First of all, we note what the law was powerless to do and then we note quite simply what God did and there are a number of points to think about and what God did. But we need to realize what the law could not do. Because that's what Paul says here. He says to, uh, to us through his word, for what the law was powerless to do. We have now no condemnation because here, if you like, another reason. He's putting it another way. What the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by, our sin, by the sinful nature. God did. Our question is, what was the law powerless to do? To do? And the answer is the law was powerless to bring about a completely renewed life. The problem of mankind is that being sinful, we have broken the law. The law is spiritual, the law is good, the law was something that needed to be kept perfectly if we would see God. The law sets before us the perfect way. However, we are all born in sin. We go on to sin. Our nature is sinful. Adam and Eve broke the law in that first transgression. And they have handed down to you and me a law-breaking nature. We are sinners by nature. And it's something that we need to constantly remind ourselves of. We are sinners 
not because uh, we uh, have simply gone out and done wrong. We actually sin because we are sinners. Sinners through the common uh, factor that comes to all born of Adam and Eve because we are under their condemnation. We were in our first parents. The sinful nature is handed down and therefore we actually sin. The law is absolutely powerless to change that. The law, if you like, is external to us. It's set there and it says to us, here's what you should be doing. But it gives us no help to be able to be perfect. Not, and that's why Paul says the, the law was powerless to do this because it was weakened by the sinful nature. We're already sinners. We have broken the law. And no matter how we try to keep the law, we only end up in utter futility. We could say that the law was powerless, and so we are utterly powerless of ourselves. There's nothing you or I can do to change the fact that we have broken the law. No matter how much we try, we will not be able to make it better. I was thinking about this and the illustration came to mind of someone in these past wet weeks playing a game of rugby out on a very wet pitch. And if you've watched any of the games of rugby, you'll note that they're pretty dirty after the game. But just imagine some of those players in England and their, their filthy mud clinging to them head to toe. And they go into shower, but all they have is the flood water that is brown and filthy and dirty. And they're trying to wash in it. Will they feel clean? No, they won't. They can't do anything to clean themselves. They need a better and way, way to do it. And in a way, when people try by the law to make themselves clean, that is what they're doing. They're washing in the filth of filthy water that they cannot, that cannot clean them. Yes, they may be able to get rid of some of the mud. They may be able to clean up their lives to some degree. But ultimately, the, the mud of sin still sticks. And it takes something far greater to remove it. So the law, Paul said, was absolutely powerless to present you or present me <coughs> in the righteousness that we need. Powerless because of our sinful nature. <coughs> You'll have to excuse me coughing, but we find, therefore, that the law is powerless. But here is the wonderful truth that comes second to that. God did something. And we note that this is what the law could not do. But then we read what God did. What did God do? What was the law powerless to do? What did God do? Well, Paul puts it very succinctly. God did. And we could stop there and we could think about all that God has done. How wonderful those words. God did. He 
the one who created you, the one who is Lord of glory, he has done it. And that is something that every man, woman and child needs to remember. When we come to seek to be saved, to know and be at one with our God, it's not what I did or what you did or what anyone else has done. It is what God did that really matters. We could stop at those words and just think about what God did. But Paul actually helps us because he tells us what God did. And we should note what God did. And everything that Paul says and every word that Paul writes is vital for us to take note of. First of all, what did God do? Well, he sent his son. That's worth dwelling on for a moment. God did something absolutely outstanding in sending his own son. And that tells us that God sent not just a prophet, not just a priest, not just another man, but his own son, his equal, the second person of the Godhead who was dwelling with him in heaven who is all the attributes of God, a son beloved of the Father, a son, Father, and Holy Spirit, remember, who were in vital and continued fellowship together in the Godhead even before the world began, and the son who was involved with the Father in the creation, for when God spoke the word, it was done. And Jesus was one of the three persons of the Godhead vitally involved in that word spoken. God took that Son who was His own and He sent Him. God sent His Son, the one who shared all with His Father. And you and I need to remind ourselves by this that Jesus Christ, the Son who came, was fully God. Equal with God the Father in all His power and glory, worthy to be exalted. Jesus Christ, we so often think of Him as a man, and it's right we do that, and we'll come to that in a moment, but let us today remind ourselves that he was fully God because he was sent by God the Father, the very Son of God. And the scripture reminds us again and again of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. There are, of course, always been errors, heresies that undermine the reality of Jesus Christ being fully God. But once you take away the divine nature of the Son of God from Jesus, you undermine the very work of salvation He came to do. For none other but the Son of God could save. He was and is fully God. Only He could do what needed to be done. And so often... We see Jesus Christ as a man. But let's focus in on this for a moment. He was God. Perfect 
but sent into this world. What a God we have that he took his only son. He sent him into the hostile world. He sent him into a world of rebellion where he would be rejected. He sent him into this world that he would suffer the cruelty of man's hatred on the cross. God sent his son. That's what he did. And he did it because he loved you and he loved me. When we return to John 3.16, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. But not only that was he sent his son, he sent him in the likeness of sinful man. And this is an absolutely staggering thing for you or me to really try and grasp. That the Son of God, fully God, should come into our world in the likeness of sinful man. And every word that Paul uses there is important. He didn't come as sinful man. He could, that would be useless, although there will be those who will argue that and try to make out that Jesus came as a sinner. Well, of course, that's another heresy. It is wrong. It's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what Paul is saying. He says he came in the likeness of sinful man. First of all, just note, in the likeness of sinful man, he was a genuine man. He was really a man. He was just like you and me. He was born of a woman. Yes, she was overshadowed. Mary was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. Jesus was conceived in her womb by the Holy Spirit. But Jesus Christ was a baby in her womb and was of the substance of his mother. Fully man. Born as any of us are born of our mothers. Having been fed and all the different growths and bloodstreams and connections with our mother in the womb, all of that belonged to Jesus, just as it belonged to any other man. He was genuine as a man in all that he was. And this is the one God sent his Son in the likeness of sinful man. Truly a man. What a remarkable, miraculous conception Jesus had to be born not of a man but of the Holy Spirit and the the Virgin Mary. And that's a truth that Satan loves to attack. He will often cause the finite minds of men to think this is impossible. We couldn't have this. It didn't happen. He wasn't a genuine man at all. He was something different. Somehow uh, different. And all kinds of different ideas and thus heresies have been developed to try and explain these things to our finite minds. Friends, it's the miraculous. It is of God. God did send His Son to be truly a man. And note... As a genuine man, he was also, however, different to other men. For he was without sin. He was without sin. 
He came in the likeness of sinful man. But he was separated from us in that he was not born uh, uh, as we are by two parents, both of whom are of Adam. But he was born of God. That's why in our catechism of that word, no mere man since the fall. Jesus was not a mere man. He was more than a man. And all the evidence of his real humanity is before us in Scripture. When we read of him as a child, he had to grow up. He had to learn wisdom. He had the appetites of a man. He was hungry. He needed to sleep and eat. He needed rest. The the Word of God is packed full with the genuine nature of his human-like being. But it is also equally clear that he had no sin. That Jesus was perfect. This is the one God sent. To be like you and me. To look like you and me. To live like you and me in every way. But different. For he was without sin. Only such a saviour could accomplish the purpose of God the Father. God and man, two distinct natures and one person forever. That's what we believe about Jesus Christ. For only this kind of person could do the work God sent him to do. If he wasn't a man, he couldn't identify with you or me. If he didn't know our appetites and all that we are as men and women, He could never step into our shoes to be what we needed. And if he wasn't God, the Son, truly God, he couldn't accomplish the purpose to overcome death. But the third thing we want to note is that God sent his Son in the likeness of sinful man. What to be? To be a sin offering. Some translations simply say, for sin. Uh, but when, he say, when we say that, this is what it means. It, it, for sin. What about for sin? To be a sin offering. To deal with sin. To be the one who was perfectly fitted to bear the sin of man, though he had no sin of his own, and to deal with it by being a sacrifice, an offering on the cross, to bear away the sin of men and women. And so when Paul speaks about what God did, this is what he's saying. God sent his Son in our likeness to be sin, to become the one who would deal with our sin. And if you would be a Christian, you have to believe this. You have to take that on board and say, yes, that's what I believe. Jesus Christ came to be. He came because of our fallen broken, disgusting, sinful nature. And he came to be like us. And then to take our place. To be counted as one who is utterly corrupt. That we who are utterly corrupt might be saved. What did God do? That's what he did. The question you have to answer is you accept that he did it for you. He did it for you. 
Have you believed in him? Have you trusted in him? Or we could ask, put that another way. Has the Holy Spirit been at work in your life and brought you to know that there is no new condemnation, no condemnation because of what God has done? Let's just think for a moment as we conclude about what God has achieved. Look what Paul says here. It's a, an amazing thing to think about what he says in verse 4. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be met. That's what God has achieved. And you know, in sending Jesus Christ, he sent a man who would be perfect in every way. And that in itself is a condemnation of our sinfulness. For we see Jesus, the perfect man. And you and I know as we look at him, that's what you ought to have been. That is how you ought to live and and. And act. Those are the attitudes. That's the the God-honoring man that you should have been. And every time we think about Jesus, our sin is condemned because we are not what we ought to have been. He is the the very type, the uh, example, the perfect one. And all of us are flawed. He is the note that is right bang on exactly what God wanted man to be. We are all out of tune. We are all rotten with our sin. And so, that's why Paul says, uh, so he condemned sin and sinful man. His very being condemns them. And as Christians, if you are a believer and live as you should by the help of the Holy Spirit, a life consistent with your profession, you'll know something of that if you're in the workplace or in society. Because your very actions that are Christ-like condemn those who are ungodly. When we uh, live and act honestly and truthfully, and someone else sees that who has not been honest, well, they know they're wrong. The Spirit of God will convict them, even though it may not be to repentance, but they know. Their sin is condemned by our actions. How much more is sin condemned by me, uh, to me by God, the Son, who became my Savior. But more significantly, even than that, God has achieved for us that glorious salvation. He puts it, Paul puts it this way, uh, that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. In other words, Jesus died and was offered as the sacrifice for sin so that being in him it looks as though we have met every requirement of the law. Something outside of ourselves, the one who is Jesus has met every righteous requirement of the law. And so Paul is able to say that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met. But note the qualification who do, in those who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit changed person. The Spirit who has brought new life. The Spirit who has taken the old carnal nature and 
condemned it and brought that person to new saving faith in Jesus Christ, the Spirit that is in you to live in the way for the glory of God. Sometimes people talk today about a carnal Christian. Maybe it's not something we've heard so much recently, but maybe I've heard that phrase. It's a lot of nonsense. You're either controlled by the sinful nature or you're controlled by the Spirit of God. If you're in Christ Jesus truly by faith, you are under the power of the Spirit of God and you will live for Him. And that's what Paul, that's what he wants to take on from here and tell the people, you're now in the Spirit. Therefore, this is how your life will look at the end of chapter 8. That great passage It is only applicable to those who have the power of the Spirit, who are controlled by the Spirit because they're in Christ by faith and depending all on Him. Therefore, there is now no condemnation because we have been justified by God because He did something the law was powerless to do. He sent His one and only Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, to be sin, to be a sin offering, that you and I who trust Him by the help of the Holy Spirit might have moved on from the sinful nature and be living by the Spirit. And you need to ask yourself, am I living according to the Spirit? All we can do sometimes at the life of another who confesses Christ is look and see are they walking? In, are they showing signs that they're living by the Spirit? If I were to ask or look at your life, are there true signs that you're living by the Spirit? Is sin and the sinful nature being put to death? Is your desire and zeal for Jesus Christ being encouraged and helped every day that you want to know more of Him because that's what the Spirit does. Sometimes you don't talk much about the Holy Spirit. That's because the Spirit's whole purpose and job, as it were, is to focus on the Son, to bring your life into conformity with the Son, to highlight the Son. Is your life under the power of the Spirit of the living God. If not, repent and bow down before the Lord and cry out, Father, forgive me. Do your work in me. and Let me live according to the Spirit as I trust in Jesus Christ as Lord. Amen.